you your beer oh thank god i got a paloma inspired goza honestly i'm honored do you know what a paloma is um it is a drink that has grapefruits in it and it means something in spanish yeah it's very delicious so maybe this will be delicious let's see it's okay i like it it's subtle it's subtle. Which I feel like is code for it could be better <laughs> in 99% of yeah. situations. Anyway, we're back with it's going to be okay. They said we would never come back, but we're back. Yeah. This COVID is only, tried to keep us down. I think this is only our second episode during COVID. Yeah. If I'm not um, mistaken. But we're excited to do this. We've been meaning to for a while. Yeah. Uh, for those of you joining us for the first time, this is our podcast where we talk about medical mysteries sometimes mysteries sometimes just interesting cases and mystery mysteries yeah and this is grace taylor and eddie grom uh so today we're going to talk about it's going to be a break from format a little bit because i had a really interesting case the other day that um that i'll kind of talk about but grace is still going to do all the medical yeah i tried to I tried to rope Eddie into doing the whole medical segment, and he was absolutely not having it under any circumstances. Yeah, I was not having it. So I'm going to interview him about his case, and then he's going to do his typical shenanigans. My typical shenanigans. I have a good mystery lined up for for us. I'm excited. Um, it's like 95 degrees outside. Yeah, it's very hot. Eddie's a little bit cranky because I had, like, a perfect hot girl summer day, and he was in pot A, stamping out meth. Yeah. A but, lot of meth, actually. Yeah, I'm sure. So, it's okay. I think this will cheer me up. Yeah, see? All right. So, uh, do you want to start, or how does how will it work? Yeah, I'll, um, I'll start. So, Eddie had a really interesting case a couple days ago that probably some people heard about. And I think what I'll do is I'll, like, interview about the case and... and tell you kind of go through some teaching as we're going so why don't you give us the kind of the ring down and the like initial the first few steps of this case yeah so and and just to to be clear this was i was just an adjunct in the room this was uh the wonderful dr bilski was running this case and did an amazing job uh and it was probably one of the craziest um cases I've had recently at least and probably that Anya's had so it's really stuck in our minds so basically we it was at the end of our shift at the end of our 3 to 11 shift that had been fairly busy and mostly understaffed and we heard that uh, there was a cardiac arrest coming in uh, and that was PEA and that the patient uh, had been coded for 55 minutes Honestly, when I hear that, I think, okay, so they're dead, and so they're going to come here, and then I'm going to pronounce them, and that's going to be that. Because as you guys know, PEA is a very, very unsurvivable rhythm in general, right. and being coded for that long, you're like, your chance of having a neurologically good outcome is approaching zero. Yeah, in my mind, what I'm thinking about during these situations is, 
what do I need to do to just to check the boxes to declare it? Yeah. So, I mean, that's a cynical way to describe it, but you have to think about airway. And we actually had been told that this patient had an airway, but they say that sometimes and you never know what's going to roll in the Right. Door. They might mean king tube. They might. It's obviously a, a lot harder to intubate in the field, so it could be an esophageal intubation. Yeah. So those are all considerations. You're thinking through your differentials of H's and T's and... and you know, to what standard you need to prove that they're not going on. And I think we did know, or at least we heard when the patient rolled in, that he was a heavy alcohol user. That was as much as we knew about him. Okay. And then when he rolled in, kind of what was your, what did the medics say and what was your initial impression? So the medics uh, said that he collapsed at home and then they kind of repeated that he uh, had been coded for 50 minutes and that he had gotten multiple rounds of epi, I think like six rounds of epi. Uh, but you know, I, I, the recent change to the Lucas device uh, has made CBR easier on the medics and more reliable in the yeah. field. Um, so this patient came in with CPR in progress with the Lucas device. And uh, the, what we saw was, uh, was that the patient was very descended, like had a huge abdomen um, that was tense and had an a ET tube in place. And I was on airway, so basically... Um, I immediately just wanted to confirm that we were in the airway. Uh, although even before I took a look, I um, could see that we had got the him hooked up to the monitors and he had end title. Yeah. How do you like to confirm air, uh, like placement of the tube in those situations? So if there's actually a tube, I think that you... Well, I'm going to say what I thought before this case and then after the case. Perfect. So I, I think before... I, this case I would have said I like err on the side of doing less because if you're getting entitled yeah and and you are pretty confident that the patient's oxygenating okay I don't really think I mean you might just cause more oral, oral trauma to try to confirm that it's yeah okay. and the things that you'd be ruling out are like the the cuff like right above the cords or like I, I, yeah. some sort of freak thing where you're getting some end title but it's in the esophagus which has happened in, yeah. in situations before but I, I do think like the medics are pretty good when they're good and, and I, I, I felt like I didn't need to do a lot yeah that's I, I'll pause you just to say that that's exactly where I'm at I think that, that we get into this like this place of like trying to look with a laryngoscope but there's the, the, the device that secures the tube has this like screw in it and it's kind of um elaborately holding the tube yeah. in place so you're like trying to unscrew it. And he did it. have the ET tube holder. Right and yeah. you're trying to like fit your your laryngoscope in there and CPR is going on and I always feel like fuck I'm going to dislodge the tube but more than anything and if there's good end title and, and good SBO2 like where else could it be? So tell us how it, why did your mind change? Well I guess I'm just glad I looked because I think it probably led us to the diagnosis sooner that this was I mean I'm, we're not going to bury the lead here is a massive GI bleed in, um, in this patient and so uh, in looking like the mouth was filled with blood and there mm -hmm. were, there was blood coming up through the ET tube so like I guess I wanted to we wanted to know if there was blood coming from the esophagus at right. now that the airway was secured or right. if he had like diffuse alveolar totally and it's not uncommon for blood to be coming out of the ET tube for a number of reasons especially people who have had CPR in the field totally or, or, or and like it's not a perfect seal so he's probably still aspirating with the massive amounts of blood that was coming up through so his airway so how did you guys come to the diagnosis of massive upper GI bleed so like 
it was basically a rapid sequence of events. So basically I confirmed the tube. There was a bunch of blood in the airway. Um, and, and so I think we all knew that that was probably the cause of his, oh, and then I think around the same time his hematocrit like came back at like mm -hmm. less than 15%. It might've been a little bit after that, but basically we kind of knew that that was happening, but that didn't change the fact that this guy had been coded for almost an hour. Yeah. And so we were pretty much ready to call this code. And so I stepped away from the airway and I went to do a cardiac ultrasound on the next uh, pulse check. And I got this great sub xiphoid view of the heart where he was like, had amazing function and was, was tachycardic squeezing normally. Um, and I was very surprised because mm -hmm. they had actually not felt a pulse well, like before the ultrasound. And then all of a sudden, like, as I was seeing that view, the person with their hand on the pulse was like, oh wait, they actually have a very strong pulse. So, I mean, I, I'm sure you've experienced this before. Epi kicks in and like all of a sudden people have a pulse miraculously, especially in the, in the setting of good CPR. Mm -hmm. uh, so I feel like that's another good learning point because my, I tend with cardiac ultrasound on pulse checks to be a little bit of a naysayer about it because, you know, we have evidence that there's a lot of intra-rater, um, like lack of consistency around like cardiac standstill versus cardiac motion. And unless you're seeing a big effusion, like you should be calling the code based on the pulse, not on like how many, you know, cardiomyocytes seem to be twitching on your ultrasound. And it definitely delays return of CPR. It takes people a second. To oh yeah, it. totally. So, Especially with the Lucas too. Now, I found that I can never now look um, parasternally. Yeah, I always for sure. have to look sub -xiphoid. For sure. So, but this is a nice, another nice example of you don't know what you're going to find until you look. Yeah. And it sounds like that kind of changed the direction you guys were going. Then. Well, yeah. So, so then now all of a sudden like switch gears, which just happens every time we get ROSC. And um, we, we basically at this point knew that probably what he needed was just a massive blood resuscitation mm -hmm. uh so we activated mptp and then like charge was kind of giving us a little pushback about immediately activating mptp and you had the hemoglobin at this point uh we had the hematocrit yeah which was less than 15 percent uh and then we that was on the vbg and then i think we just called for like emergent typo blood mm -hmm. and then i worked on getting a cortisin as soon as possible mm -hmm. um and uh, and basically at, at that point, like, so just skip ahead a little bit after two units of blood, which went in really fast, he was still hypotensive. Uh, and it was, it was clear about that we needed to just continue to just slam, um, blood products. Yeah. In. Was he actively bleeding? He was actively hemorrhaging like from around his ET tube. Did you guys have an NG tube in? We had, we put an OG tube, mm -hmm. tube in, uh, which, uh, got filled with blood pretty immediately. Gotcha. Um, and then, yeah. And like I said, he was really distended. So like he had a ton of abdominal pressure. And when I put the cortis in, I am, I don't know if you're planning on talking about the procedural aspects of this case, but I for, didn't clamp cause this was only, you know, I haven't done many cortises and, um, and I forgot to clamp the the Strong. side tube. Yeah. yeah, and basically like 500 cc's of blood came out immediately. Like he, it was like 
his he just was pushing like all blood out of his thorax and yeah. was bleeding profusely. So right, it was, he was a high risk for like recoding yeah. immediately. Yeah, pushing all blood out of his belly. You mean out like, of his? Well, like, like he had such his, high pressures yeah. that like, like he was bleeding into his esophagus. Yeah. He was not perfusing probably his heart. Yeah, like, it, he wasn't great. Like I'm sure he had huge intra-abdominal pressures and wasn't. Uh, and we didn't look at his IVC, but I'm sure it was really collapsed. Cause, sure. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, dude, because of his massive ascites. Exactly. Right. So, um, okay, so you guys, so I think we're not going to talk about cortices today, although it's a good, just a reminder to everyone to play with a cortis kit that's already open because it's not super intuitive to put together. Um, and, and a reminder, especially for the interns, if you're listening, if you're, if you're going down the path of giving blood or even massive fluid resuscitation, a triple lumen is not going to get that no. in fast. And, like, some people in the room might try to talk you into doing a triple lumen because it's easier and gives you more access. But it's a peripheral IV is often better than a triple Absolutely. lumen at resuscitating people fast. And a cortis can get a, a unit of blood in, and what is it? Like, super fast. There's really fast. A, I don't it's know. Like two minutes or yeah. something. There's, I mean, I'm sure people have seen the, like, um, infographic of the different types of access and how quickly you can get blood through them. And your best, your best, best, best um, access device is going to be a 14-gauge IV because we don't have to name the law, but we know that the length of the of the lumen and the radius of the lumen are going to be the two big things that are that are determining how fast you can get flow through it. Um, all this to say, this is a case in which a cortis is super indicated. Um, play around with your cortices because they're not the most the most intuitive in terms of setting it up. Yeah. Um. So then, and then, how did you guys decide to put in the Minnesota tube? Yeah. So then we were calling. So then, basically, a lot was happening, and um, it was very clear. And I think at this point we had started to involve the other players. So we had called ICU and um, we had asked for GI to start to be involved. And so we knew, I mean, this was clearly a cirrhotic with his ascites. We knew that this was almost certainly a variceal bleed um, and he was very unstable. And so that's a situation in which a Minnesota and actively bleeding. So a Minnesota tube is indicated in that setting. Uh, And honestly, like, We've gone through it a couple times, but I've never personally placed one, and uh, it helps to review it now. So I, I, I hope you've done some reading. Yeah. Because uh, you can remind me. Because at, at the time, we sort of, I just used what knowledge I ha- had in my, like, deep memory from conference to kind of remind myself what we were supposed to do. Um, and for everyone that has to do this at the general, it lives uh, in recess above Basically, you know where all the supplies are in the IV bags uh, near the uh, radio call room. It's mm-hmm. on the top shelf there. Gotcha. So, yeah, let's talk a little bit in general about what therapies are recommended for variceal bleed um, and the kind of, yeah, the approach to therapy in the ED. So what are some, like, pharmacological things we can do for variceal bleeds? And those things got ordered um, probably by MICU at that time because we were so... Totally. You we were, were trying so, to yeah. literally stop And so the dying. pharmacology that... So we always, in any GI bleed, just give adiaprotonics. Like, it's not going to hurt the patient. It's all probably not going to save their life, but just do it, um, regardless of whether it's variceal or not. Uh, and then octreotide is is uh, is indicated if someone's coming in with a variceal bleed. Mm-hmm. And I actually don't know the dosing off the top of my head. Yeah, there's a bolus and then there's a drip. I think it's 250 mics of each, but check me. 
Um, and do you know the data behind yes. it? Yes. So octreotide, basically you're going to get like splanchnic um, vasoconstriction. It does not improve mortality. Right. That's but it, what I remember. Right. Yeah. It does maybe improve rebleeds. Um, and so you're going to see everybody do it. And then the actual drug that does improve mortality is going to be ceftriaxone. Right. Um, and it's kind of mechanistically, it can be a little bit weird. You can, it's like people will describe it as prophylaxis because there's a lot of uh, infections that come up as um, sequelae of GI bleeds. It's also true that sometimes an infection is the trigger for a GI bleed. You know, our cirrhotics are very fragile and can be tipped off by, if, if they have SBP, that can make their portal Increased hypertension portal worse. Hypertension, right. Yeah. And then they're coming in, they're presenting as a huge variceal bleed. Um, so yeah, so ceftriaxone is actually the only one right. of those that's and really going to improve. And he got that as, um, sort of in, probably within the first hour of coming in. Cool. And then TXA. We, um, he got TXA. As yeah. Well. So there was recently in the Lancet this year, a study of TXA in GI bleeds that people were really excited about that had kind of disappointing outcomes. So basically, um, they, uh, when they looked at, at, um, using TXA in like all comer GI bleeds, although 89% of them were upper GI bleeds and found that there was no difference in, in any um, useful outcome, but did see a slightly higher risk of VTE in the TXA group. There's some criticism that perhaps um, it has to do with time to TXA, like we see in some of our like trauma settings, that the sooner you get it, the more it does. These uh, In this study, it was like 21 average, or excuse me, 21 hours was the average amount of time it took to get the TXA, and right. so maybe they're just out of a useful window. So TBD. Um, there's also the question of kind of... Do you think that... Where is our EM practice falling right now? I mean, clearly we're still giving it, but... Um... There might be a time where it really falls out of favor and you could be faulted for giving it. Yeah, I think that it's, I think it's like pretty contentious, especially at our institution. There's like all this rumors and ghosts of like internal data about like bad VTE risk and people who get TXA and trauma. Um, you know, this should all be changing a little bit now that we have more access to TEG in the emergency department that hopefully we can direct our therapy a little bit more specifically. Um, this is going to be particularly important in patients who have cirrhosis because as we know, um, you know, cirrhotics have both are coagulopathic um, and have, or, or rather have um, aberrant pro-coagulant and anticoagulant factors. And it can be a little bit hard to assess how coagulopathic they are. Their yeah. MFP might be nine, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're that much more likely to bleed. So um, hopefully tech has some utility for them. Yeah, I think I think I'm glad that it will be used as a standard in all our traumas because I don't think, I'm not going to speak for Anya, but I, I don't think I would have felt comfortable interpreting a tech report in that setting because we, like it's so new and rolled out and totally. I, I haven't... I mean, I, I've done training and I've read about it, but I, I don't think I would have been able to really yeah, yeah. It's direct a, therapy. It's a super based. non-intuitive um, readout that they give you. Yeah. It's very, well, my editorializing is like, it's a very house of medicine to, in 2020, give people nearly like a non-intuitive graph with some like numbers instead of just saying like, like it would be trivial to have the computer interpret it and describe what it means and describe what you should give, um, which so anyway. Do you think that, or do you know if our ability to target blood products, like, will we still activate MTP, but just decide how much to give? That's a good question. I don't know. I I haven't been in a trauma with TEG yet, but I suspect that, that 
like I like will our like relationship with the blood bank change if we can say actually exactly, we want yeah. yeah I don't know I don't know what's gonna happen that'll be really interesting yeah so to that end I just want to make, say something quickly just about resuscitation in general and massive GI bleeds and um so you know MTP was a great call I think just like anyone who's hypovolemic you want to be doing a balanced resuscitation with more than just packed red cells platelets are super important in bleeding cirrhotics um you know, getting platelets above 50 is going to be really good for them. They also may um, not have enough fibrinogen, so giving fib- fibrinogen um, can be useful as well. You know, like I said, the INR may not really reflect truly how likely they are to bleed, and so FFP, like, can be useful, but it's also going to dilute out more important um, product for them. The other thing to think about is what you're actually resuscitating them to. Um, just my one point would be that you know some of these cirrhotics may have lowered may hang out with lower blood pressures may have systolics in the 90s and you know a a variceal bleed is a venous bleed so if we're like pumping them full of fluid and increasing their venous pressure that could at least theoretically make their bleed worse so these are people that like permissive hypotension is something that you want to be thinking about yeah we got into a situation where actually we stopped MTP after probably I don't know how many units of uh, blood products because nurses were sensing that basically there was resi- there was resistance uh, venous resistance against the infusion uh, and I mean I think it was maybe a little over exaggerated that he was getting more distended mm-hmm. because and we were concerned that he was like third spacing all of the volume we were putting in him that he was mm-hmm. increasing his venous pressure and then his blood pressure like really wasn't responding super well mm-hmm. and so we felt like, okay, we just put a bunch of blood products in him. Let's just hold off for a little bit. Yeah. I want to ask questions about, like, your decision-making. Also realizing that this happened at, like, right before sign-out in a crazy busy department. And you had Mickey and you had Gia there. So it's, like, not appropriate for you guys not to spend, like, three hours in this room. But did people think about or talk about, like, doing a therapeutic pair of four? We did. We did talk about that, yeah. I actually was like almost stuck an 18 gauge needle into his belly and just like pull off a bunch of fluid. Um, I was just worried about him being super coagulopathic and making things worse by making him bleed into his abdomen. Um, they ultimately did a therapeutic paracentesis sure. upstairs and so now I'm sort of regretting because I mean to, to fully paint the picture for those listening, we we're having trouble ventilating this patient uh, and we were, he was only getting like tidal volumes in the 100s because of how descended his belly was and they felt like the Minnesota tube and the the ascites were making it a lot harder this that they being RT um, for them to to truly oxygenate well and then we were concerned honestly the other thing we were considering doing was just sticking 14 gauges into his thorax because we we didn't know if cpr had caused attention mm-hmm. i i tried to ultrasound that was really difficult in that setting uh and so just a reminder that after someone has cpr like that could be a reason when all of a sudden vent said it pressures are increasing and all of that so that ultimately ended up not being the case you got a chest x-ray and it was fine but um his belly was pushing up a, a, and not allowing his lungs to expand mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um yeah, also, I'd literally, I, what, a, what a crazy case. that had so much just, like, mechanical and um, pathophysiological just aberrancy in his body. I want to see what you guys were dealing with. 
Um, so I do want to talk a little bit about placing a Minnesota tube. So I'm going to go through what my kind of reading about it has been. And then I want you to chime in with sort of the real life pearls that you guys came across. So the, um, the indications for placing a Minnesota tube in general are going to be variceal bleeding that cannot make it to endoscopy. Um, sometimes it'll also happen for variceal bleeding that has failed endoscopy, but that's not really our problem in the emergency department. Um, it's going to be basically a, a temporary bridge to definitive management. Um, it's going to only be done on intubated patients. It's basically, it's like not safe to do if someone's not tubed. So if you guys, everyone should, if you haven't seen one, you should Google a picture of a Minnesota tube in your mind's eye. My, basically it's like a. And also just a reminder that there's another, there's a Blakemore yes. tube, which is set, different slightly different so yes. depending on your institution we have Minnesota too definitely and if you yep. you know work somewhere else you should go figure out what they have and and learn how to do it but basically it looks like a long NG tube that has a like at the distal end of it has one kind of smaller circular balloon and that's the gastric balloon and then immediately proximal to that I don't know what I'm like distal and proximal are a little bit arbitrary here but um immediately closer to the mouth than to that is kind of a what's going to be a hot dog shaped esophageal balloon and then coming out of the the mouth end of the tube there are going to be four ports the ports are going to be an esophageal aspiration port an esophageal balloon port a gastric aspiration port and a gastric balloon port so essentially you need this actual tube you need a syringe a 50 cc syringe um, to actually blow up the balloons you need a kelly clamp or a three-way stop cock and then you need some lube um, the things I saw online basically demonstrate you like taking the initially checking the balloons by like putting the whole Minnesota tube in a bucket of water like you would a bike tire and then like blowing up the balloons and seeing if they're bubbles. Yeah, if you're doing do this that. in the ED, you're like, <laughs> but the, I did I did check both balloons. There we go. By inflated by putting air in and feeling. Yeah, closely, that's like, how I would do a bike tire anyway. Yeah, so you're again like you're probably doing this in like hyper crisis. Shit is on the wall. Um, Situation, so you're probably not gonna get a bucket of water, but you can absolutely check the balloons and make sure that you're you're inflating them correctly. Because the the thing to know is that, unfortunately, it's impossible. Like the the setup is not great insofar as if you if you were to insert air with one of the syringes into the gastric balloon and then just take off the syringe from the port, that air would just come right back up. There's no like one-way valve. You have to either have it clamped or have a three-way stopcock on it. So like going through that exercise and checking yeah, the balloon is actually really useful. Gotta, I don't know if we like clamped it fully. Like we might've left the syringe on. I am, I wasn't the one who placed it like, mm -hmm. in the moment. So I, I don't remember. Um, but that is a good reminder. And, and the, the ports are labeled, so mm -hmm. so just make sure you're just always looking. Yes. Um, and yeah, yeah, I think knowing the volumes, which I'm sure you'll go over, mm -hmm. uh, are important as well because you want to make sure you're not over descending, but also not inflating it to a, a level that's not useful. Totally. So, is, what you're gonna you're going to insert the tube. You're gonna loop up the tube. Insert it to 50 centimeters. There's a line that marks this off. Anytime I put a tube in a patient that I'm not used to putting in them, I like to just like hold it up in front of their body first and be like, yes, this is reasonable. 50 centimeters should be in roughly the right spot. So you're going to insert it to 50 centimeters. 
Um, then you're going to basically put a um, test amount of air in the gastric balloon to ensure that you're in the right place. Because if you fill up the gastric balloon in the esophagus, this can be super dangerous and cause like esophageal perforation. So you have the tube in, you're going to, using the, the gastric balloon port, you're going to put 50 cc's of air in, and then you're going to clamp that port and refill up your syringe. Um, and then you're going to put 50 cc's more of air in for a total of 100 cc's of air in the gastric balloon. At that point, you're going to stop and get a chest x-ray. And if you're, your chest x-ray should clearly show a balloon that's below the diaphragm in the stomach. After the chest x-ray, you're going to put 350 to 400 cc's more air in the gastric balloon. So that's 100 initially plus, let's say, 400 after that for a total of 500 cc's of air in the gastric balloon. So typically like 400 to 500 cc's of air is the right amount for the gastric balloon. After that, your, your gastric balloon is full, your esophageal balloon is, has nothing in it, you're going to put tension on the whole Minnesota tube. So there's like a football helmet method. I, that honestly never made sense to me that you wouldn't just be pulling at the football helmet. We're not gonna get into that. What you basically do is you can just take Curlex tie it to the Minnesota tube, and then tie the other end of the Curlex to a, a one liter thing of saline and hang it over some I, IV, um, an IV pole. So basically you are pulling with one kilogram on the tube so that um, the gastric balloon is pulling against the GE junction and tamponading those vessels that are feeding the esophageal and varices. This, to, uh, to, this patient had gastric varices. So if we had sort of gone through this whole process stepwise, theoretically that would have tamponaded the bleeding. <laughs> so after after doing after doing this, after hanging the kilogram of pressure on um, with your gastric balloon inflated, you need to check to see if there's blood coming out of the esophageal ports. So you can basically take the um, the esophageal aspirate. Um, port and connect it to suction and see if you're getting blood. If you are getting blood returned, then it's time to put up the esophageal balloon. This sounds like this is going to require another layer of equipment. So you want to inflate the esophageal balloon basically to um, a, a certain pressure. So you need to have a manometer that's on that port um, that's measuring 30 to 45 millimeters of mercury. In theory, there's a manometer that you can get from RT and maybe attached to a three-way stopcock. I haven't, I don't actually know what we have. When I've asked attendings about this, they're like, I don't know. I don't want to deal with that basically, which like isn't wrong. You shouldn't be doing this like fully alone. This is like, you know, step 10 of this procedure. So, um, the, the big risk with the esophageal balloon is that obviously the, the esophagus is like thin-walled and fragile and subject to necrosis if there's too much pressure on it. So, you know, you can have these Minnesota tubes in, in theory, for 24 hours. And if you're doing that, you need to every six hours be taking down the esophageal balloon um, to decrease the risk of necrosis. None of that should be our problem in the emergency department. Um, do you have any like thoughts and pearls about like the reality of putting in the balloon? I mean, I will say that the balloon was a little harder to pass um, than anticipated. And actually, I took a look again with the laryngoscope to try to just make sure that it was going in the esophagus. And it was, but we actually couldn't get the esophagus. Like, we could see the esophageal balloon coming sort of out of the, in the posterior oropharynx. So it like... I mean, it, everyone's going to be a different size, so it's hard to, I don't know the length, but it was hard to like fully tell if the gastric tube was in the stomach 
and we didn't pause for a chest x-ray at that moment. We never inflated the esophageal balloon, but we, we inflated the gastric balloon in an attempt to sort of tamponade in the moment. Ultimately, we took this out because we were having such trouble with ventilating, and I, I think that extra tubing in the thorax was causing, or at least in RT's mind, was just causing more resistance to ventilation. And, you know, he was bleeding, but we were resuscitating him. And we and then the, the major reason is that we knew GI was, like, in the parking lot and was coming to, to scope him. So, like... The Minnesota tube is going to come out anyway, and because we were having some difficulties at like getting it to be you know fully functional, um, we decided to take it out. Although I will say, for the time that it was in there, um, with about I think we never gave more than a hundred cc's into the gastric balloon because we didn't get a chest uh, an X-ray with it in. Uh, we saw less blood coming out of the hmm. mouth, so hmm. it's possible that there was blood passing through the rest of the GI tract, but it, it felt like we had better control of the of the hemorrhage after putting the Minnesota tube in. Hmm. Yeah. That's interesting. That's such a, a good experience to just like go through the the actual, you know, like muscle memory of, of dealing with this device because it's it's one of those one of the many things in emergency medicine that like we don't do often and it can be life-saving actually i have a like folder in my notes of like critical procedures that are rare i have like like crike and resuscitative um hysterotomy and um lateral canthotomy tvp that i just have like a list of steps of how i would actually get it do it and what what stuff you need to get for it and that i review every once in a while because i do not remember things that happened in conference more than six months ago, and that's actually yeah, very generous. Yeah, I think that's super six important, ago. reviewing these things, and this was a good reminder that uh, we should just be facile at procedures, even if we've never done them. I walked Maddie through a thoracentesis, that, and I've never done a thoracentesis. <laughs> there so you go. Was, uh, it's, it's but like, that's not a life-saving Teach procedure. one, see one, do one. Is that <laughs> how it goes? <laughs> just <laughs> teach one. <laughs> um... Yeah, yeah. I think uh, this is a critical thing to just remind yourself every once in a while to do. Yeah, there are. A lot, I mean, the like expectation is that we know a little bit about everything, and there are things that are like you have to know in thirty seconds, and things that you have to know in five minutes, and things that you can look up on up to date. And like, it's really, it's just it, like you're saying, like the expectation that you do a procedure for the first time to save someone's life is like really just an extraordinary burden. And then, I don't know if you did any when you were preparing for this reading about the two other options we had if like GI wasn't on their way were like we had, I I see you uh, talk to IR Mm -hmm. about potentially doing an intervention, although with variceal bleeding, I don't think there's much that you can do. I mean, I know that, I know that if they fail, if they fail banding or endoscopic intervention, that sometimes they'll do a TIPS. Um, that said, my it, that kind of it sounds like the kind of thing that's happening when a patient is a little bit more metastable than this patient is. I don't really know what yeah. how stable you have to be to go to TIPS. Um, and then we um, the other thought was consulting Gen Surge just for uh, two reasons actually. One was the concern that he was potentially developing abdominal hmm. compartment syndrome, and the other was that. Uh, you know, when all else fails and someone has a massive GI bleed, sometimes they actually do a gastrectomy or some sort of full, you know, take Yeah, they take it out. Um, yeah, I think in other parts of the country that don't have as much access to um, 
to IR or to, to GI, depending on where the bleed is, that that is more, that's more first, that can be more first line or that can be a part of the algorithm that we don't always think about because we have such excellent consultant services. Yeah. But I guess it's a reminder for us that if, if he was developing abdominal compartment syndrome, a paracentesis would have sufficed just as much as a laparotomy. So I don't think, and then he ultimately did that upstairs. And so anyway, this patient went upstairs, got all the things. He got an EGD. He got a, a therapeutic paracentesis and made it through the night. Uh, but unfortunately, I think was so unstable that his family uh, decided to make him comfort care in the morning, uh, which is unfortunate. But cirrhosis is sort of a one-way disease, and I think it's hard sometimes when they, people get to that point to resuscitate them. Yeah, I mean, that, I would say some of our sickest patients that we see are... There are some are are cirrhotics with any variety of complications. I mean, like you, I feel like people who are having massive uh, uh, variceal bleeds and are in like DTs at the same time, like it's just this like horrible multi-car pileup of pathophysiology that can be really really hard to manage. Should we talk about your mystery mystery? Yeah, we can do that. I'm excited. I don't know how it's related, but... Yeah, we'll have to work on that connection for our title. So, today, I'm going to talk about the Mary Celeste. Have you heard of the Mary Celeste? No. So, the Mary Celeste is probably the biggest oceanic mystery ever in history that's a big statement because we don't know what's down there well besides i guess what we don't know which is probably all kinds of weird creatures and craziness but it's the biggest man or at least ship-based oceanic mystery so in the 1870s there was a ship called the mary celeste it was an american ship i believe and it took off from um sorry I, i don't have it pulled up but i think it was new york city uh, and it's it was bound for Italy, Genoa. And this was in November, early November uh, of that year. And basically, you know, they obviously at that time didn't have any communication to the to the mainland, right. so people just assume it's on its way. And what what the ship was carrying it was a it was a large shipping vessel. It was carrying cargo uh, that was mostly denatured alcohol. Which, do you know what that is? No. Denatured alcohol? So it's not denatured in the sense of like the chemical process of denaturing. Denaturing alcohol actually just means diluting it with toxic components like methanol to make it not drinkable and to use it for things like burning, like camp, camp stoves or whatever. Um, and so it's usually just like a 50% or less ethanol level and then it has a bunch of toxic components that sounds like a dangerous thing to have around yeah Yeah, (laughs) i mean anywhere probably is dangerous um sometimes they dye the denatured alcohol to to make sure that people don't drink it you know surreptitiously but anyway it had barrels of this denatured alcohol and they were transporting it uh, because that was used in a lot of different industries what a time do you remember I, i feel like we grew up late enough that everybody had cell phones like pretty early I remember one time in my life trying to meet a friend like in high school or middle school when neither of us had cell phones and if you show up and the person isn't there you're just like 
I hope they're not dead. I'm gonna go home now. And, and that's what it was like, like. Someone going across the world on a ship, and you wait months, and you're and you have a general timeline of when they might arrive, and then they never do. Honestly, like it really puts into perspective me checking my email every five minutes to like. Exactly. Yeah. Anyway, go on. So the captain of the ship was a guy named Benjamin Spooner Briggs. Solid. It sounds like a ship name. Yeah, like Spooner, Schooner. He was strictly, he was very religious. He read his Bible to the crew every day. He didn't let anyone drink, neither the denatured alcohol nor their own spirits. And, And so, and he was very by the book per everything that was known about him. He also brought his wife and two-year-old daughter on the, on the boat. Uh, so, basically now it's been about a month since this ship set sail. Meanwhile, another ship, captained by Captain Morehouse out of Canada, it's a British ship, they called the De Gratia, set sail sort of on the same route. I don't know where their destination ultimately was, but across the Atlantic. And they go by the Azores, which, side note, have you ever been to the Azores? No. I've been to the Azores. It's a pretty amazing vacation destination. So in post-COVID times, I highly recommend people go there. Is it warm? It is temperate. I would say it's a temperate climate. It's it, So basically, the Azores are these islands in the middle of the Atlantic that are owned by Portugal. They're not around anything else and but they're uh, it's like an archipelago of, of multiple islands and they were uh, epicenter of the whaling industry and shipping industry because they were mm-hmm. the only land in the middle of the Atlantic and now when you visit them there are these quaint Portuguese islands where they're full of nature and major hiking trails I saw a blue whale there um, it was truly a, a pretty incredible experience. And I've only been to the island, so I plan to go back one day. So they're beautiful. Uh, but it wasn't so beautiful for the Mary Celeste. So this the De Gratia was near the Azores, and, they, and now it's December, and they see uh, a ship off in the distance, and it's acting sort of erratically, so meaning it's, it's not moving in a way that appears to be navigated. So... They approach it, and the Captain Morehouse calls out, and no one is answering. And so they board the ship, and there's no one on the ship. So have you heard of ghost ships before? Um, I feel like I've heard of ghosts. Well, I've heard of... I'm thinking of, like, mirages of ships. That's different. I'm thinking of, like, Pirates of the Caribbean, how there are zombie pirates on one ship. Right. That's all I got. And there's all these legends of ghost ships that are said to be manned by ghostly people. Gotcha. But this is a separate entity where it's it's called a ghost ship because it's floating alone without... Does that happen people. frequently enough there needs to be a term for it? it? Yes, it actually happens quite a bit. Uh, not quite a bit, but, the, but it has happened a number of times throughout history. This is probably the most famous incident of a ghost ship. And so... The way that they saw the ship in place was the sails were not all, uh, I don't know of sailing terms, but they, some of them were furled, meaning that 
the sails weren't set in a way that they were trying to catch a lot of wind. Mm-hmm. So if you had just said furled, I would have been like, wow, Eddie knows so much about sailing. <laughs> well, so, so if a ship gets becalmed, I know that term, meaning that there's no wind all of a sudden and it can't move because there's no wind, they would put out all the sails mm-hmm. to try to catch whatever wind. But this ship had some of the sails furled, which means it are tied up. So that means that that wasn't necessarily the issue. Gotcha. So the sails were in various states of um, uh, furlidness. And then the ship was in pretty good condition. So they, uh, they found that there was um, most of the, the mate's belongings there. So no one had really taken their clothes. Mm. Um, there was a f- months, like six months of provisions on board. All the cargo was there. Uh, there the captain, uh, his bedroom had a sword underneath his bed, uh, which I don't think was unusual for the 1870s. Yeah. I think it had a little blood on it, which might come into sort of discussion later. Uh, but then, basically, it looked like no one had robbed this boat and no one had exited it in a hurry. Uh, like, it was very ordered, and there were papers left there, like, in a not in a state of disarray and so uh, besides the lack of like it having been ransacked was there any evidence of violence other than the sword maybe no there was no evidence of violence wow the only unusual thing on their uh exploration of the ship was that there was some water in the bilges uh meaning when so when a ship gets takes on water it has these pumps to try to to take out the water and uh, and they settle, the water settles in the lowest point of the boat. And this ship has a significant amount of water in, like, in the lower parts of the boat, but not in a dangerous way, like mm-hmm. not in a way that it was sinking. Uh, so th- they noted that. They were like, oh, the pumps kind of were had some water in them, but it didn't look like this was at, at all in any danger of sinking. And the most significant clue is that the lifeboat was missing. So like the crew clearly got on the, the lifeboat. How many people were on the boat, uh, roughly? I I think it was not a ton of people. Let me see. Um, I don't know the answer to that. Let me... Yeah, I'll, I'll look it up and tell us after. But I don't think it was, like... I, I would guess, like, 20. Okay. Like, 20 people. Um, so, what are you thinking right now about what might have happened? Well, let's see. There... I mean... The fact that the boat was in, there was, like, no signs of any kind of struggle or shenanigans is a little bit hard to to reconcile because it seems like there, for some reason, everyone decided to get off the boat more or less of their own accord. And whether that's because there was something bad on the boat or they were trying to get to something else um, is kind of open to me. Like, could they have been trying to help someone else? That's a little bit bizarre that they would all have to leave. Um yeah, it doesn't, there's not, like, a really obvious, um, like, just explanation for this in my mind. Did yeah. they all go crazy? I feel like half of your mystery mysteries are explained by, like, uh, folly, uh, however many people there were, where everyone goes crazy and does something <laughs> bizarre. Uh, vent, like yes. 20, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, Thank you for your French consult. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it, that was what puzzled everyone. So basically, the way that this came into the public eye was because this ship, the De Gracia, and Captain Morehouse 
took it to Gibraltar. Is that how you pronounce that? That sounded, that sounded really right. Which was a big shipping port. Because there were laws on the sea where if you found an abandoned ship, there was a something called salvage, and you could salvage the vessel and, and basically take ownership of the profits hmm. of this vessel. And so, but it has to go under an investigation. And so this, this captain had to go to basically court and pr- tell his story and say, this is what I found. And they had to kind of determine what they felt had happened. Right, and because immediate- that would be a really good get-rich-quick scheme. Yeah, and so immediately there, there were suspicions around the, the vessel that had found this, this boat. And so the, the, the first suspicion was that there was foul play and that the story was not correct. Mm-hmm. That, that this, this crew had either attacked or murdered the crew of the other ship and tried to, um, you know, take off with the profits. Sure. They, they did a pretty thorough investigation that proved that, or at least showed that it was very unlikely that any sort of foul play had happened on the boat How? with that. I think they just basically showed that there was like, it was unlikely that there was any like major violence on the boat. There okay. was no blood or anything like that. I mean, it's possible they just like threw everyone overboard or whatever, but um, that was like, they basically, their names were cleared. Okay. Um, but they did, and they, but they only got about one sixth of the salvage money. So they, there was some suspicion obviously on them because they, sure. they didn't get the full value of the money. But it, the, overall that was felt to be unlikely. So, uh, do you, what else could be like a bad thing that happened on this boat? What did you think? You know? I mean, there there could have been a bad thing where someone else boards the boat and compels them all to do something against their will. There could have been a bad thing where someone who was on the boat had some reason to try to kill everyone else and then accidentally died and their body wasn't found. There could have been a ghost. Yeah. There could have been they all went crazy because they drank the the um, denatured alcohol. Yeah. It's usually not a side effect that I'm aware of. So, I mean, these are all things that were floated. Literally The so movie many- Climax. Has anyone seen the movie Climax? I told you to watch that movie. Yeah, I'm never going to watch that movie. I haven't are seen it. But I had the me? plot explained to me in great detail. Oh, we have to watch that movie. No, that movie's yeah. f- like a thousand percent too scary for me. So I don't think they were all spiked with LSD because I don't think LSD was invented yet at this point. Yeah, no. Um, but, the, but yeah, so there's all kinds of theories about what happened that either they all... So it's been theorized that they had a mutiny um but then the question is why would they all leave on a lifeboat uh, if they had a mutiny and killed the captain it's been theorized that there were pirates but there was no one stole anything from the ship so why would there be pirates there were these pirates called the Rafini pirates that were off the coast of morocco at the time so they were in waters that could have been at risk but Mm. it it doesn't really make sense uh, because they would have taken things it's been theorized that uh, they potentially uh, went like someone went crazy and murdered everyone like you said and actually that theory got popularized uh, by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle the author of Sherlock Holmes because he wrote a short story uh, called like the confessions of whatever that his character's name was and it was about a it sounds pretty racist, I haven't read it, but it's about an ex-slave who hates white people and decides that he is going to murder everyone on the ship and then um, 
and then something happens where he he basically uh, gets killed in the interim and then uh, and then falls off the boat or something uh, and people actually read this and believed that that was what had happened on the boat but when people asked Arthur Conan Doyle about it he was like no I just made this up it's a story mm-hmm. uh, so so those were all things that were floated and then there were floated I was like, should I let it go? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then there were, you know, a little, um, some other more like natural explanations for what might have happened. Uh, rogue wave. Rogue wave. No one talked about a rogue wave because I think the if there was, was like wet. a true rogue wave, it would have capsized, right? Yeah, yeah. Was, and the ship was in good condition. But have you ever heard of water spouts? No. So water spouts are basically tornadoes in the ocean, which occur, uh, I think... I think they're a known phenomenon and happen often where basically it's a exactly what you would think it's a tornado of water Why in the ocean. Does I don't know. That happen. We have to I, read about yeah, it. Yeah, we do. I actually to be honest, I don't really understand how tornado tornadoes happen. Yeah, it's um, kind of crazy actually. Yeah, weather is really it's a whole so, thing. But so but if a water spot happened, theoretically it would have like poured water into the, sure. the boat explaining the the amount of water that's not that dangerous and then maybe they got worried that the boat was sinking and that they tried to escape and uh their lifeboat because of the second rogue wave because of the rogue wave <laughs> um two hit hypothesis. the other theory is so have you ever heard of giant squid yeah you know that i've heard of giant squid so giant squid can be up to like 600 pounds and yep. like really big yeah which is less than colossal squid which are shorter but fatter really yeah oh i didn't know that there's the different species mm-hmm. i learned that from my and point. one of the things they noted when they were examining this boat was that there were all these like scratch marks on the on the bottom of the hole and so theoretically so squids are known they're not like they they don't really attack people yeah they're not like particularly scratchy either but but I think they have like I think they have giant squid. suction cups. I know. And like a beak maybe. And it doesn't really make sense. Like would the squid like take the lifeboat? Like why that doesn't really make a lot of sense. Uh, I mean it's it's interesting to think about, but I don't think that it really makes a ton of sense that they would abandon the boat or that the squid would one by one pick off all the sailors. Like it it just seems really unlikely. The other theory that's natural phenomenon is a sea quake. So basically, there's an earthquake that happens on the ocean floor and causes, you know, rogue wave or whatever. But the concern is that it causes such trembling at the boat level that there could have been spillage of the fumes of the, oh. of the denatured alcohol. And if the captain would have known the risk of this, of what the cargo that he was carrying, and potentially would have been concerned that there was an impending explosion. Hmm. And people, some people say like well there wasn't an explosion like why would he leave the boat that is in good condition just because like of the potential that there might be an explosion but some people say like maybe he got everyone on the lifeboat tied a rope to the boat and then said well, we're going to sit on here until we made sure that it's safe but then mm-hmm. the rope got untied and then mm. the boat took off um so that's a potential that's a nice that's a nice model of explanation that like there was a potential threat on the boat and then one thing led to another and the lifeboat got fucked up and then they were really really screwed yeah could they all have fit on the lifeboat yes i think they all could fit on the lifeboat 
The other, another explanation is that aliens, because the people always have to have aliens. But why would aliens take a lifeboat? So I don't really think that that would. Yeah, that's the uh, incredible part of that potential theory. <laughs> um, have you been following the jetpack situation around LAX? No, what's the... Twice in the last three months, um, pilots have seen a person on a jetpack, like, thousands of feet up while they're taking off or landing at LAX, which is, like, technology that, like, barely, barely, barely exists and really shouldn't be happening in, like, airspace above LAX. Wow, that's pretty interesting. Yeah. I think there's, like, a startup that has you can get up to like 15,000 feet on a jetpack or they that's what they say or like or the thousands of feet um but it's like I bet it's not, like Elon Musk or something yeah like on his just like taking grimes on a date <laughs> yeah but that's pretty crazy actually yeah it happened twice oh, I have to read about that yeah yeah so I mean I don't know what, what New Zealanders have for a lifeboat but um that's one and then so one of the recently most commonly accepted explanations is that the ship oh and then so then the other the other theory before i get to that one is that the briggs and morehouse were in on it together to try to do insurance fraud so they so basically like oh i'm gonna pretend my my crew disappeared and then go into spain under assumed like new names and uh, and then take the money. We'll share the money from the salvage or the insurance. Uh, but the boat wasn't overinsured, and it doesn't really make sense at that point. Um, it just was felt to be pretty, pretty unlikely, especially because Briggs was proven to be like a pretty moralist man. Hmm. Um, but that is one explanation. And then the most common one is that they, the Mary Celeste was found to be pretty off course uh, when when it was found and so the thought is maybe they got they got drifted off course he knew that they were off course but the ship was still manageable and they were trying to go and then something happened like a water spout or whatever that led to the boat getting some water on board and then he was he basically made a decision saying we are now off course and the ship is taking on water we should just get off and try to find land um which it doesn't sound like they did. So that's one explanation uh, for what might have happened. So no one ever found any of the survivors. Uh, there have been intermittent false claims that someone is a uh, survivor, like our podcast where someone's claimed to be Anastasia. That's right. Uh, of the Romanov family. Of the Romanov family, which was incorrect. Uh, but no one was ever proven to have been on the ship. Uh, and then the ship was re- repurposed and um, and was in action for many more years, and then actually was the subject of an insurance fraud. Uh, years later, it was purposely wrecked off the coast of Haiti, and then the captain at that time tried to get the insurance money, but was caught uh, trying to wow. do that. Um, so that was its fate. But the Mary Celeste is famous. There's been many documentaries, and it's like sort of in modern lore ship lore about uh, and it's actually used in some in some circles as like parlance for something that's adrift and kind of like unexplained so like you're at like oh, like, like you're kind of Mary Celeste today 
I don't know. <laughs> yeah, we're going to start using that. That's how I'll be using it in the future. We're going to Mary Celeste today. Yeah, so um, that's the story of the Mary Celeste. Wow. What do you, you think? You can put me down for insurance fraud as the explanation. I think you that's think the so? I just but they didn't get a lot of money, so they failed if they did that. People but. are not very good at things sometimes. I would always, always suspect, like, the malintent of... Someone trying to make money over ghosts as an explanation. Oh, yeah. And I don't think it was ghosts, but I do think... I think I probably guessed that it was some sort of impending doom on the ship, and then they like made act- a rash decision right. to leave. And then couldn't yeah. get back on. That's a good one, too. Yeah. But I like to think it was a giant squid, because... Have you ever seen the video of the giant squid? Yes, I have. Oh, my God. Yeah. That's scary. Yeah, what else is in the ocean? There's no way to know. We saw whales today, surfing. Are you kidding me? No. <laughs> you actually did? Yeah, we did. Well, to be honest, we weren't totally sure because they were pretty close. But they... So some people thought they were dolphins, but they were bigger than dolphins. They were whales. That's not whale season. They were, they were bigger than dolphins. They were like... I'm just trying to yeah, pretend that you didn't you're, they're, I, I mean, they're, are there only um, humpback whales? Or also, are there like pilot whales? Or no, like, no, no. The gray whales are the ones that... That we saw? No, that day we were surfing. Yeah. Yeah, the gray whales are the ones that commute. They do the migration like yeah. up and down. But I think we're between because I think they were going south. And then in a few months, they're going to come north again. But, uh, yeah, there are other whales. There's humpback yeah. whales. Yeah. They, uh, these, dolphins are, like, not that big. Maybe it was orcas. That, no, we didn't see the big. That would be cool. That would be out of control. I did see an orca never seen in Washington. Orca. It breached. I cried. I have a picture. I'll send it to you. Isn't it amazing that whales, like, make us cry because they're so wonderful? Yeah. I just feel like, as a kid, my number one, well, I had a several wishes, but one of them was just, like, to be involved with, like, large animals. Like, I thought large animals were so cool and magical, and I wanted to be their friend slash, like, live with them in the forest. And, like, most animals are, like, not really as impressive as they're made out to be in, yeah. like, children's fiction and, like, well, so, but, like, whales really are. They live up to it. Yeah, sure. exactly. You'll never be disappointed when you see a whale. Like, they're huge. They're magic. They sing. Yeah. Mysterious. Yeah, they're so amazing. I've seen three blue whales, Grace. I don't think I knew that. I thought you had only seen one. I saw one in the Azores, and I saw two a few weeks ago, a month, a couple months ago. Whenever I went down to the Channel Islands, I saw Oh, one. yeah. Yeah. It was pretty amazing. All right. Well, that is our, that is what we planned for today mm-hmm. um should we say what we're looking forward to yeah why don't you, you go first no you should go first um what am i looking forward to i think you've I'm, been on a long sabbatical so it's uh, a little yeah. hard to look but i do future. have a vacation coming up in november but i'm not sure what i'm going to do but we may be going to hawaii if restrictions are loosened uh in which case i'm very excited for that and i'm excited to have Danny seen Howie. That's amazing. Yeah. I'm so jealous. I that sounds like a wonderful time. I still haven't to? been to Hawaii. Oh, you have we have to go. I haven't been to Hawaii, I haven't been to Yosemite, I haven't been to Joshua Tree. Wow, you're leaving California? Yeah. I know. Really really fucked that one up. Good luck in the one hundred and eighty inches of snow. Yeah. Boston. Good luck in my fucking Subaru <laughs> trying to get to my 
commuting two hours to the only job that was available <laughs> in the state of Massachusetts. Wait, did you get a job? No, I didn't get a job. I would tell you. But I'm, my joke is that I'm going to have to get a job that's, like, hours away because the market is so bad. That's the worst. So what are you looking for? If I got a job, I would have called you in the middle of the... I'm going to, like... Yeah, yeah, I understand. I would have been upset. Yeah. It's going to be a big, a big moment. Um, I'm what am also I looking forward to Lana Del Rey's new album. She released her song yesterday. And even though she's kind of a Karen... I mean, she wore a mesh mask. Did you see that? Someone said that there was plastic underneath it. I mean, it's about the signaling. I mean, it's art, you know? It's like... But anyway, I I heard her song last night, and it was really good. Yeah. Yeah. You... I will say there are a lot of things in our relationship that you have not converted me on, but you have converted me on Lana. Wow. Take it down, everyone. (laughs) Put it it in the record. Um, I'm looking forward... I think I said this last time, like, it's kind of, I think it's, mm, I'm going to do something other than vacation. I'm looking forward to having dinner with you and Danny today. I'm going to cook a roast chicken. An entire chicken? Yeah. Oh, boy. An entire chicken. An entire chicken. All right, we should, we should, we should go because it's going to be time to start making dinner and Danny's here. Say hi, Danny. Hi. Sorry, I'm trying not to make noise. <laughs> You're doing an excellent job. <laughs> I'm proud of you. Um. Well, we enjoyed doing this. This was fun. Yeah. It it helped my cranky mood. Didn't it? Yeah. Didn't you know that I knew that it would? Uh. So please send us feedback and thoughts. We love hearing, you know, responses to our podcast. So, um, and hopefully we won't let Aslan go again before yeah. we record. Yeah. All right. Bye. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.